as a clinician, there's there's nothing more that I want for this pandemic to end as fast as possible. So um, I just hope that we make, might make one small contribution to that. I'm Heather Bushman for N Equals One, a podcast about science and discovery at UC San Diego. In each episode, we bring you the story of one project, one discovery, or one scientist. For this episode, I spoke with two physician scientists, Dr. Aaron Carlin and Dr. Sandra Leibel, about an exciting project they're working on together. Both are assistant professors here at UC San Diego School of Medicine, where they both see patients and run research labs. Aaron studies viruses such as the Zika virus, and Sandra has developed mini lungs, stem cell-based organoids that grow in a petri dish in the lab where she can study diseases that affect newborn lungs. That's what they were doing six months or so ago anyway. Then SARS-CoV-2, the novel coronavirus that has caused the COVID-19 pandemic, entered our lives. Aaron and Sandra knew of each other previously, but they hadn't worked together before. That quickly changed, and now they've teamed up to explore what happens to the lungs when they are infected with SARS-CoV-2 and how we might be able to mitigate that damage. Like many things over the past few months, this episode is a first, the first time we've recorded remotely by Zoom rather than in our own studio. Here are Aaron and Sandra. How are you both? How are you surviving? I know Aaron has kids. To Sandra also, also has kids. Yeah. Yes, it's uh, yeah, uh, it's it, things have been uh, very busy and and crazy trying to balance uh, all the work that uh, we need to do in the, both the hospital and we're both physicians as well as in the laboratory as well as um, you know managing and being involved in our young children's lives is uh, is a lot. Yeah, for sure. So. What, tell me a bit about what each of you were working on before the whole COVID pandemic hit, before we knew what COVID was, <laughs> if you can remember back that far. Oh, it seems like forever ago. So, like Erin mentioned, I'm a neonatologist as well as a lung biologist. When I was a neonatal fellow, um, I worked in a really large lung transplant center. And so we were kind of a NICU that any baby that was born with a lung disease that was incompatible with life and they required a lung transplant, then they would be sent to our NICU. And, you know, they're stuck on a ventilator. And usually it's because of this uh, genetic mutation in the protein that makes this molecule called surfactant. And surfactant is kind of the soap that's in our lungs that when we breathe out, our lungs don't collapse. They remain open and that allows us to exchange oxygen and carbon dioxide. And so when they were born with this mutated protein, they were unable to do that on their own. And that's why they needed mechanical ventilation. And so taking care of all these babies, you know, I always kind of thought, is there a way to use possibly gene therapy in a dish to replace this genetic mutation, which is actually a really simple mutation of just a couple of base pairs um, in order to then reverse this disease. And um, the next question was just what kind of a platform can I use in the lab to study this surfactant molecule and this disease? And so once um, these stem cells were kind of invented by um, a Japanese investigator who actually won the Nobel Prize for the induced pluripotent stem cell uh, discovery, you, I can take your skin cells or your hair cells or your white blood cells and actually change them 
into cells that can look like embryonic stem cells. And so those cells are able to differentiate into any single cell type in the body. And so what I do is I take those cells and specifically push them towards a, a lung phenotype. And so actually one of the babies with the specific surfactant protein B mutation, um, she got a lung transplant and then I saw her in follow-up when she was just getting checked out. And I actually took a little biopsy of her skin. And um, I grew those out and then changed those into induced pluripotent stem cells. And then I devised a way to um, change the induced pluripotent stem cells into a uh, lung organoid or a collection of lung cells that kind of represent the multiple cell types of the lung. And so that's what I was studying before uh, the pandemic hit is trying to devise a way to correct the surfactant protein B mutation in a three-dimensional lung organoid model system. So you have many lungs growing in a dish in your lab. And Erin, what were you doing meantime? Yeah, so I'm an infectious disease physician and scientist. And so I'm interested in how microorganisms cause disease in humans. Uh, I, prior to uh, the introduction of uh, SARS-CoV-2, I was studying other emerging infectious diseases, um, uh, some that are related to SARS-CoV-2, like uh, the flaviviruses, uh, dengue and Zika that cause disease around the world, and as well as some other organisms that are starting to emerge and cause disease. And uh, I'm interested in studying these organisms to understand how they interact with the human and how that ultimately results in disease so that we can make better therapies and better uh, diagnostics. And Sandra, how did you first get interested in your particular career path? You know, what led you to studying neonatal lungs? I knew that I, first of all, liked to take care of babies when I was in residency. And in the emergency room, you can sign up for whichever patient is waiting for to be seen by a doctor. And I always chose the babies. Um, it was just, they were, you know, even though they were sick, they were still like, they not only, you know, I don't want to say faking it, but, you know, you knew it was a real problem because babies, in a sense, like, their diseases are purely based on physiology. And, you know, there's some teenagers that may be having um, other social problems or mental health problems that make it a little bit more difficult to truly understand, is this truly an abdominal issue or is there something, you know, at a higher level that I may be missing? And so from the standpoint of babies, then it was just purely, this is exactly what's hurting them. I can figure it out. Also, I have to use a little bit of detective work because I can't just ask them, point to where it hurts. I have to actually rely on a really good physical exam, which I love as a clinician. I'm very hands-on. Uh, that's why I really like taking care of babies and obviously loved my rotation in the NICU as well, which my husband, who's an allergy uh, specialist, hated the NICU. And uh, he actually did it before I did. And so when I came in and everyone knew that we were, you know, going out, they were already like, uh-oh, you know, here she comes. If she's going to be as bad as her husband, it's not going to be a good rotation. But, you know, I obviously showed that I really loved <laughs> the NICU as opposed to him. So which is why he went into clinical uh, allergy and immunology. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah. From the standpoint of the lungs, it's just um, the main reason why preterm babies specifically stay in the NICU for such a long time 
is because when they're born, they actually have lungs that haven't fully matured and developed, and they're unable to breathe on their own without some specific positive pressure, whether it comes from mechanical ventilation or non-invasive ventilation. And the fact that they have this disease called respiratory distress syndrome, which can then lead into a more chronic disease, then um, this disease itself, we haven't actually able, been able to decrease the incidence in about 30 years. So we've been kind of stuck at a spot where we're pretty good at taking care of them, but this, we cannot reduce this impact of this chronic lung disease that they get when they leave the NICU. And so that was one thing, again, as someone who's always asking questions and thinking we can do better, we can really like, you know, figure out these mysteries that have not been solved for a long time, which is why I actually like basic science, because I always have a ton of questions. And so that's why I got interested in specific uh, premature lung disease and lung development and lung biology. And Erin, why infectious diseases? How did you end up there? Yeah, so uh, I, I think I, I first became interested in microorganisms in college when I uh, started looking at, uh, took a course on virology and was really fascinated by how, how kind of understanding how viruses work, but also how understanding viruses taught us a lot about how our own cells work. And I think that um, when we think about uh, the interaction between microorganisms and humans, that, uh, you know, was, I think understanding those organisms teaches us a lot about ourselves. And, and I think when I became, when I went to medical school, it became much more clear that understanding microorganisms and their interaction with humans taught us a lot or tells us a lot about infectious diseases. And, you know, I think that one of the fascinating things about infectious diseases is it's uh, two different things interacting together. Each of them are by themselves, uh, exist in a certain state, but when they come together, they uh, basically interact in a way that either leads to human disease, but also can lead to human health. We know a lot about beneficial microorganisms now. And so there's a lot to be understood about how these uh, organisms, bacteria, viral viruses, parasites, how all of these organisms interact with humans and how that contributes to human disease and human health. So that's kind of uh, what got me interested in my field. And this is the, the part I should mention that Aaron and I go way back because we actually uh, did our um, graduate school work in the same lab, in the same microbiology lab, studying bacteria and innate immune system. Um, yes. So <laughs> what was the, what was, so for either of you or both of you, what was sort of that aha moment where you thought, all right, I'm gonna to have to put this aside because now we're living in this pandemic. We've got this new coronavirus. How did you, how were you able to sort of pivot to look at that now? Uh, I think I think for me, it was, it was pretty easy to make that decision because as an infectious disease physician, it was, you know, it's basically my field understanding this type of infection and it was, you know, it became clear pretty quickly from the data coming out of China that this was going to be uh, a big issue in terms of both the severity of illness as well as the ability of this virus to transmit to new people. And so I think that once we saw this disease start to spread outside of China quickly, 
Um, then that became clear that this was going to be a global problem that we all needed to kind of chip in and to try to understand, to try to decrease uh, the morbidity and mortality that was going to be associated with that disease. So for me, I think the transition was pretty simple. And so how did you start working with, with Sandra? How did this collaboration come about and what are you doing now? You know, as part of the transition to start working on this virus, I guess that the decision to start working on it was easy, but the actual logistics of starting to work on it was very difficult. I had to, you know, completely change the direction of what we were working on in my laboratory. We had to develop uh, um, the tools to work with a whole new virus and a whole new kind of setting. We had to get a BSL-3, kind of a biosafety level three facility, which is kind of a higher level of safety type facility up and running uh, in terms of both the tools to work in that lab as well as the actual virus and the protocols. So there's a huge amount of work that needed to, to be developed to actually get things working in the BSL-3. But now that things are working and we have great systems to study the virus, we can now start to to pursue a lot of really interesting projects from all the way from very clinically related stuff to uh, you know, testing of new antiviral compounds to diagnostics and also to work with people who are really understanding the physiology, the pathophysiology that occurs in this disease. So why does this virus, like what cells does this virus infect? Why does it cause such severe disease? How is the body responding? And Sandra has uh, you know, what I think is probably one of the best, if not the best tools to try to understand that pathophysiology. And so that's kind of how our um, kind of interaction uh, started. So you've got virus and you can, you can work with it now because you have this new BSL-3 facility and then you've got the lungs. So kind of describe for me, Sandra, what that, that looks like and what are, sort of things are you testing? And I also just wanted to mention that we were also members of this program through UCSD called NCLAM. Um, I don't know, National Leadership Academic Center something, something. <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's the National <laughs> Center for Leadership in Academic Medicine. From, okay, and it's National you. Institutes of Health program, right? And so yes. that helps provide new um, and junior faculty with lots of the skills that you need to suddenly not just be a scientist, but to be a manager and to get grants and to work within the academic environment. So, so yeah, so you were both in that program. Yes, exactly. And we were in it obviously in the beginning when we were able to participate in all the group sessions and you know, meet each other and uh, describe where our needs are, what our expectations were. And then obviously it changed once the pandemic hit and um, we all had to zoom in um, and continue the class that way. So we were the first class that ever had to go through that transition. But that's actually where um, as soon as Aaron reached out looking for someone with a long platform to be able to study the impact of the virus, the first thing he said is, hey, you know, I know you from NCLAM. And right away <laughs> I know like, all right, this guy's serious. He obviously really cares about, you know, this like, um, uh, this project. I knew I could trust that it wouldn't just be a, um, like a dead end. Like, you know that anyone who's in NCLAM actually cares about um, B 
being a physician scientists or scientists, uh, whatever pathway they've chosen. So um, that I just wanted to add, that was a cool coincidence. Once the pandemic hit, and we knew that we had such a great robust uh, platform that can be used to not only study these viruses that are well known in the community, but maybe we can actually use it to you know, answer a lot of absolutely unknown questions about uh, the coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, and hooked up with uh, Aaron to then have access to the virus, be able to get into the BSL-3 and uh, use the lung platform to understand you know, what cells are being infected, why are there some people that can get infected, but they walk around asymptomatic and you know, are unknown spreaders while other people get incredibly sick? Uh, how does the virus go from infecting the upper airway, go down all the way into the lower parts of the lung, end up on ventilators? And so there's a lot of questions that we wanted to answer using our uh, lung platform. And the fact that we're also able to constantly make these lungs in a dish is also really helpful because you know, obtaining human lung tissue is very difficult. You have to wait for a surgeon to actually be performing a procedure and then take the tissue and then either grow it or dissociate some of the cells and then grow them for a couple of weeks. So it's just a very long process. And so creating these lung organoids in a dish from stem cells, I can have lung organoids made on a daily basis and ready to be infected. So help me visualize what this looks like a little bit. So do you have, you and your team in your lab are preparing these lung organoids in a dish and then, then what? I mean, how do they get to the BSL-3? Is there a process for getting them inside there? Then, then what happens, Erin? Do you have to like totally gown up? What does it look like? So from a lung organoid standpoint, um, what we do is once they've been fully matured, um, what I have to do is first I have to get them out of the matrix that they're in. Um, and so I spend a couple hours in a regular BSL-2 lab, which is just a step down. Um, and it's safer and anyone can do it as long as you have proper training. Um, so I'll dissociate them out of the matrix they're in and I'll put them in little tubes, put them on ice, and then drive them to the BSL-3. And um, once I bring them in, then, you know, as Aaron can describe himself, we do have to get into a full Tyvek suit, what's called a papper or, you know, like a breathing helmet that's attached to a little uh, air belt <laughs> um, respirator. And that kind of blows in fresh air into the hood that we're wearing. Um, and then I'll just bring in the uh, lung cells now uh, into the BSL-3 lab. And then Aaron just makes tons and tons of stock of virus. So all I have to do is take one of the tubes out of a minus 80 freezer, thaw it, and then just add them directly to the lung cells themselves, and then just let the virus do its work in a tube. So Erin, what makes a different, besides what you have to wear, what makes the BSL-3 lab different than BSL-2, say? Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's really the level of safety for both the individuals who are inside, but also um, the amount of procedures we go through to make sure that we provide safety to the community as well, to make sure that nothing is released or actually gets outside. So the amount of uh, security that goes into the people who are allowed to visit or have access to the BSL-3, uh, the precautions that we take to make sure that nothing ever escapes or to gets outside towards the community is, is you know, a much higher level of security. 
um, the, the actual uh, kind of uh, personal protective equipment that we wear is kind of a much higher level of uh, protection. We wear, like Sanders said, a full Tyvek suit, uh, which basically, you know, doesn't allow kind of uh, any liquids or any sorts of uh, microorganisms inside. They, we have booties, we have, you know, multiple pairs of gloves we have that are changed many, many, many times while you're inside. The amount of cleaning reagents we have to clean all of the surfaces to make sure that everything is, is totally sterile. Yeah, so there's a, a, a lot more procedures to both ensure the safety of the individuals who work there, but also to ensure the safety of the community. So that's kind of the, the big parts of ESL3 versus a, a lower biosafety level. And where do you get the virus, the, the novel coronavirus SARS-CoV-2? Is this something you can order from, you know, a uh, facility that provides stuff for research? Or how does that work? I'd say the main way that uh, people access the virus is that as part of the NIH, there's a, a location called BEI Resources, which is uh, a group that's associated with the NIH and basically provides these isolates to certain researchers or parts of the community. And so in order to access a virus like this, though, you have to go through intense screening uh, through their you know, NIH's procedure, BEI's procedure, through your own biosafety officers, they have to know exactly where every stock is going. So there's a, a tense, an intense kind of background check before you're able to access the virus. But from there, you're able to access some different isolates from different patients, from different locations, to make sure that you can study uh, these viruses and, and provide critical information to uh, other physicians in the public so that we can try to combat the virus. So now as you're doing these studies of the coronavirus in lungs, what, what has surprised you through the course of this totally new study in just the last few months? I was expecting to just study the biology of the virus and kind of understand, you know, how it infects, how it propagates, how it transmits, how cells, you know, are um, resistant to it versus, you know, die very quickly. But the first thing that people want to do is let's find a cure, right? And so all the collaborators that we've actually been able to uh, work with have all just gone straight into let's fight this disease, let's cure this disease. And we're just using the lung organoids currently to just try and test a variety of different compounds to see which ones will be the most uh, potent in reducing infectivity as well as the actual transmission of the virus, as well as keeping the actual human host cells alive. That for me has been a big surprise. I didn't realize that I was gonna be able to take part in such a cool um, use for the virus in the lung organoids, which is actually trying to find a cure for this disease. Normally when you put the virus on these, expose the lung organoids to this virus, you see the cells die and then you can add something and if it's a potential therapy, presumably you see fewer cells dying. Is that, is that how it works? Um, I haven't done that yet. All I've seen is that when I add a specific compound, depending on what the dose is, and obviously compared to the virally infected lung cells without any compound at all, it's very cool to see not only that there's less virus that got into the cells, but more are alive. And so from that standpoint, all that probably means is that less are getting infected. 
Um, but because it's such a closed system and I have to add in specifically, let's say a hundred thousand cells. So then I know exactly how much virus to add um, specifically. And that's more of a virologist's uh, understanding of why you need to know virus to cell uh, ratios. Um, I'm happy for Aaron to take over that description, but uh, <laughs> because it's such a closed system and I can only add a specific amount of cells, what I'm interested in doing next is, you know, infect a specific number of cells and then just keep adding fresh cells to see what happens because that's what actually happens in the lung is we have this regenerative capacity it's not this closed system where a specific amount of cells get infected, they die, and that's it. There actually are stem cells that then come in and try and fill in those gaps of the other cells. And also there's a whole immune system that comes in to fight the virus as well, you know, brought in by signals from the lung cells. And so that's another thing that my lab is looking into is deriving stem cell uh, macrophages in order to see what those do in the lung um, and how they actually help uh, killing off the virus or de at least decreasing the impact. Very cool. And, and what about you, Erin? What's been most surprising or exciting in the course of this new study? Yeah, I would, I would say that what's been both most surprising and both really exciting is the number of different people that are interested in collaborating to try to make a difference in this disease from all different aspects of science. So we have mechanical or electrical engineers that are developing new processes for diagnostics. We have people coming from, you know, you know, medicinal chemistry backgrounds. We have all sorts of different individuals with very diverse interests and the diverse knowledge bases that are coming in to try to you know, leverage their talents to try to make a difference in this disease. And I think that that is very inspiring. For sure, there are a lot of things happening right now that that might actually be a silver lining, right? That may, might not have occurred if not for this situation we find ourselves in. Um, yeah, so I, along those lines, I'm very hopeful that, you know, even though, uh, you know, there's a, a ton of work being put into identifying antiviral therapies right now for SARS-CoV-2, we have very few compounds that treat other viral infections. And I do hope that by understanding and its development of new antiviral medications, that maybe we'll be able to treat a lot of other viral infections that we couldn't previously treat. Sure. Um, any other last thoughts on kind of what you hope for the future of this work or for the pandemic, just in general, really? As a clinician, there's there's nothing more that I want for this pandemic to end as fast as possible. So um, I just hope that we may, might make one small contribution to that. Well said. But it was great seeing you, Heather. <laughs> it was great seeing you. That's it for this episode of N equals one. You can find this episode and all of our past episodes at health.ucsd. Edu slash podcast via Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud or wherever you like to listen to your podcast. Thanks for joining us.